do it one more time? No, just kidding. Just kidding. Everyone take a seat. Thanks, worship team. Life can be a little bit like that, especially here on our campus in Term 1. It feels like we're on a mountaintop together doing Term 1. Camp, 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 woes, excursions, PDs with Paul Dillon's drug and alcohol, camp. It's all happening and you can feel scat. But it's so awesome to gather together in worship and to come home. What does home look like for you? For me it looks like this. My last picture of home was my poppy. And he was there a couple of years ago. This is the last photo we took of him sitting up on my mum and dad's couch. And I just want to kind of describe this scene for you. When you get together with your fam, isn't it a sweet, sweet thing? You know the Bubo song? I don't even know the lyrics, but whatever he says. I'm gonna go home. Well, we came home this particular day, it was amazing. Um, I want you to picture my dad taking these photos. Whenever we get together, he always he's the most sentimental person in the world. He's like, this could be the last time. Let's take photos. But the thing is, the real thing is, that was the last time. So I'm so grateful for the photo that he took. So that's my dad. Ray Ray's playing sweet Spotify playlists. Michael Boobs, Israel Helton, Gospel, R&B, Kirk Franklin, whatever. Whenever Ray Ray picks the music, home is a sweet place to be. Shawnee's helping mum and they're cooking the lamb in the oven. Well, there's something about the lamb being baked not quite the same as the gluten being baked. Um, I think I can get a witness. There's people who are filming, you know what I'm talking about. And then, um, Ali's wearing the Japan dress. I've got to tell you about this dress. This is a serious dress, ladies. The Japan dress is a black dress. It's kind of about gay. Just a little bit above the knee, school uniform. It's all good, right there. And then it's quite kind of shapely, it's a little bit, it's not like a loose dress, it's like a quite a, you know, a little shapely. And then it comes up here, and then in the 80s, you remember in the 80s, it's kind of, is it back? I don't know, fashion at all, but there's a, a sleeve that's like that. Are you with me, ladies? And then it's like that across the top. What's that called? No, it's not a pad, it's not a shoulder pad, it's not that 80s. But it's quite square. It's quite Asian looking. I don't know, that's why I call it the Japan dress. Because up the top, there's like this flap that closes and then there's button, 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 button. Is that right, Helen? <laughs> <laughs> so I call it the Japan dress, but Ali's in the Japan dress. Moonblade is playing and take her hand and Lamb's cooking. Amazing. Dad's taking photos. And there's my kids sitting around the patriarch of the family in the living room. That is home. I think maybe we're aware of what home is because we're aware of what home is not. Right? Are you with me? 
because home is a lovely idea, but it's kind of slippery. It's a slippery idea because it's transient. See, Poppy's gone. He's no longer with us. He's at peace. He's resting. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. And his next thought will be amazing because it will be, what the heck? Jesus, my family, it's going to be amazing, his next thought, which will be really cool. But home is a slippery thing. It's transient. It's there. It's there. I ask myself the question, what's the opposite of home? And it's a bad um, announcement. It's a bad promo for pastoral ministry. But my answer was actually, what's the opposite of home? Pastoral ministry. <laughs> Sorry to be a downer, but here, let me explain. We've lived in 11 houses. Four states. Um, we've been in transition a lot. That's hard. How do you make home when you're there for two years, three years, two years, five years, two? That's difficult. I was driving the Subaru from Melbourne. I've just recently purchased it, and I drove it through to Adelaide. And it was one of these January days in the south. Um, w west of that kind of Victoria, Adelaide region, down that bottom corner near the bite there, it's just hideous in January. And it was 45 that day. And I'm driving my little Sub, it was a 2007 Sub RX. Yeah, Jimmy K, just like yours. And um, I was driving it, and I got about as far as Neil Nid Hill, I think that's how you say the name of the town, it's kind of halfway point. Trucks do their drive by and they swap trailers and drive back. Melbourne and Adelaide, this is like the halfway point. Pulled in, <laughs> top radiator hose. <laughs> brand new, like, well, brand new second-hand car for me. Top radiator hose. Ah. Okay, so I'm calling Ali's dad. Can you please get the Prado and a car trailer and come pick me up? And the Prado blew a radiator hose. So here we are, this photo is um, NRMA Halfway Motors at Neil with my Prado and my trailer and my Subaru and away we go home. That's the opposite of home. Being in transition, wanting so badly to be with the one I love but being in transition. Uh, it's just not home curled up in a cab next to the truckie and my father-in-law like sitting in the middle five hours. It was okay. It wasn't that bad. We got there. Have you ever longed for home like this? Or like what I'm talking about? For that sitting room, couch, photographic, lamb cooking, dance moment, home. I thought maybe I wasn't alone today. And I see a few nodding heads. I've longed for home like this. I've been in transition before too, like when we moved from the States back to Australia. I grew up for some of my life in the United States. And standing at the gate, about to walk into the Qantas, uh, into the Boeing 747, and 10 of my closest friends are standing there. And I've got a picture of a couple of my boys. There they are, Mario in the middle, and Steve on the right, my best friends in the States. Um, standing at the gate, saying, in 1990, I want to say, for January 1994, standing there going, when will we see each other again? 15 years old. We're not 15 there, by the way, that's where we're a bit younger than you. 
Whatever. And making promises I don't know if I can keep. Like maybe I'll come and do uni with you guys. Or maybe I'll come over on holidays or I don't know. When? Bye. Longest two minute walk of my life. Just dad and me. Because mum was studying at uni, so we kind of lived six months um, a split family like that while we transitioned back to Australia. Home is so real, yeah? I wanted to talk about the second coming of Jesus. I was asked to talk about the second coming of Jesus, and I wanted to talk about it this way. Because I wanted to remind us that here at Havencamp Church, we we kind of come from this tribe called Seventh-day Adventism. And it's a mouthful. But I just wanted to remind you today that in our name, right there couched in our name, is this core desire, this heart, called Adventism. And I want to draw the contrast because I don't want to today preach Millerism. And let me explain, if you know your church history, there was a guy named Miller, and his exciting moment, and not just him, thousands of North American Christians had so much fervor and excitement brewing in them. So many of the churches we know today were born around that time, the 19th century. You've heard of the Adventists, the Seventies. you're sitting in one of their churches, the worldwide church movement. Um, the, the Mormon church was born at that time, and so was the Jehovah's Witnesses, and so many churches grew up out of this time of people just pouring through the word because they wanted to meet Jesus soon. And they poured through Daniel 2 and Revelation 13. And if you're the kind of person who wants to look this stuff up later, take out your pen and scribble these down. Daniel 2, Daniel 9, Revelation 13 and 14, Matthew 24. Do you want me to do them again? Daniel 2, Daniel 9. Revelation 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Just keep reading through the back end of Revelation. Be careful, you're reading apocalyptic literature. Look that up, apocalyptic literature. You're not reading history per se. You're reading someone's take on history and the symbols around history. So be careful with how you read it. But read that, Daniel 2, 9, Matthew 24, Revelation 13, 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, Peter, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. And if you read all of that, you can preach the sermon on the second coming of Jesus. The other version of it. The Miller version. Because the Miller version is so excited about the mass of the return of Jesus. And maybe not so much. Or forgetting or just going a little cold on meeting the man of the second coming of Jesus. So I want to preach to you today the Adventist second coming message. And that's around the hope of going home. Adventists are looking forward to meeting Jesus. And not just us, all of our Christian brothers and sisters, but us particularly, we're pretty, we're pretty excited about that. So if you're journeying with us today and you're new to our community, welcome. We want to meet Jesus. And um, we hope you get excited about that too. I think the most important question I've shared with you in a previous sermon the most important question on any topic is, any topic relating to Christianity in the Bible, is this question. What did Jesus say about it? So all those chapters I just quoted to you before that you might want to read later, 
You can read about the second coming of Jesus. But I think it's really good to start with what did Jesus say about his return? Uh, my people, I'm really excited to take you there. It's page 867 on your white Bible if you're going to use one of those. It's John chapter 14, verse 1 to 3. John 14, verse 1 to 3. Page 867. If you've never opened the Bible before, that's okay. Grab your Bible and just turn to that page. There are large numbers in front of you. There are chapter numbers and there are small numbers. Those are verse numbers. I'm going to quote some of those and you can follow along as we go through what Jesus said about the second coming. And I'm so excited about this message because I, I just love the way Jesus handles the topic. It's so awesome. It's so pastoral, Kim. The way Jesus steps in the people closest to him through the freaky topic of, hey, I'm going to come back. It's going to be big and loud and extraordinary. Let me tell you about it. But the way Jesus steps it through is so pastoral, it's amazing. If we could do this in our campus ministry team with people when it comes to scary topics, it'd be an amazing thing. So just for a bit of context, when you open your Bible, remember, 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 context is king. We've got to look at the context in which Jesus says it. And um, the context is this. If you flip back one page to chapter 13, Jesus has gathered the disciples for the Passover. It's a big festival. I just want you to think if you're a Seventh-day Adventist today, I want you to think big camp. Alright? If you're not a Seventh-day Adventist and you haven't been to big camp, which is where thousands of Adventists gather together for a high time of worship and preaching and teaching and surfing. Did I say surfing? Surfing. Yes, Jackson Cole, surfing. The Son of Man must be lifted up in the ocean waves as well. Um, if you're not an Adventist with us today, just think Woodford Folk Festival or like, um, what's another big one? Splendour in the Grass, Fire and Bay. Just think festival, high time. That's why they're gathered with Jesus in Jerusalem. It's Passover, Jewish big camp. And they're a Jewish big camp. Jesus does and says some ridiculous things. He freaks them right out. They're gathered for a high time of worship and Jesus does this. says he takes off his outer garment and he stoops down in front of his best friends and takes the place of a boy servant and starts washing their feet like this. And they are shocked because the rabbi would never do that. And Peter and James and John and Thaddeus and all of them are just like, what so that's their initial shock. But it's not just that. That was in 13 verse 1. If you flick back to me. Look in 13 verse 21 to see what Jesus says next. He says, One of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to let me down. Betrayal. Like this is a serious word. And he brings up this crazy topic. One of you is going to betray me. So just look at the... Faces of the disciples. We washed our feet. Yeah. You. Let's keep going. Look in verse 36. 13, 36. Jesus says, Where I am going, 
you cannot follow. Jesus, what the heck are you doing? Because if you think about the words he's using, what did he say? Where I'm going, you cannot what? Follow. Think about the word follow in Jewish rabbinical world. What does to follow mean? To be a disciple of Jesus. So Jesus is actually undoing the rabbinical relationship. They think he's undoing it. He says, where I'm going, you can no longer follow me. You can't be covered in my dust anymore. That was the tradition of the Jews. To be a disciple was to be covered in the dust of the rabbi. Jesus is saying, you can't follow me anymore. They're in shock. That's three things now, and there's one more. He turns to his best friend, Peter. Why do I say best friend? Because Peter is mentioned more times than any other disciple in the New Testament. Did you know that? Peter, 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 Peter. Everyone knew. Matthew knew Peter. Luke knew Peter. John knew Peter, his best friend. Look in verse 38. Jesus says, Peter, tonight you are going to deny me three times. Man, it is a train wreck in the Passover room. This is the worst big camp ever. Splendor in the grass just went to just it's just bad it's bad and this is the context in which Jesus teaches the end the end of all things I just love what Jesus says he does it so tenderly with such care with incredible kindness look in chapter 14 now with me let's step through it. First one. My version is probably a little bit different to yours. This was the only Bible I had in front of me last night, so I couldn't use the white one. So if it doesn't read exactly the same, my apologies. Mine's the ESV. I think yours is the NLT. My version says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. We're going to do this verse by verse. I've got it on the screen for you. Pastoral care. He knows they're stressed. You're going to talk to someone about another stressful event, the time of the end, the end of time, the thing down through the ages where history's wrapped up and eternity and history join and unite, become one. You're going to talk about that when they're stressed and you Jesus. You start with, don't be troubled. You speak to their heart. First. Don't be troubled. And Jesus draws on their Jewishness. He says, you believe in Yahweh? Right? He says to the disciples, you believe in Yahweh. And he says, I'm asking you to trust me. They're going to see in a few days, he is Yahweh. He's the Yahweh who steps out of the tomb. He's the Yahweh that death can't hold down. They're going to see it. But he's inviting them to believe in his divinity. Don't stress. Jesus goes on, verse 2, it says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus, I really love this. In my undergraduate degree, I studied geography. I was going to be a teacher when I grew up. 
and I started geography, and I love the idea that Jesus knows the geography of the house of the Father. I just love it. Because can't you imagination it with me? Imagine Jesus opening the front door to this mansion, people. It's like better than anything Holgate or Matcham has ever seen before. And gee, you ring the great giant doorbell, it's gonna be. You gotta ring it with your elbow. Some epic sound rings out across this home. And Jesus is at the front door. Do you wanna do you wanna see my house? This is the father's house. And Jesus takes you through, Jimmy Kay, through the kitchen. Oh my goodness. The kitchen. You've got to see the size of the mangoes in this place. He's like, do you want some mango on your way upstairs? Sure. <laughs> and you have to like go have a shower after you've had your first like entree of mango. I love the thought that Jesus knows the geography of the Father's house. And not just the geography. He knows the size of it. He knows the breadth of it. He knows the cost of making it. I just love this. I love the way Jesus steps us through to talk about his return. Jesus is saying, I made heaven. I designed this home. I'm inviting you to trust that I'm preparing it for you. So much hope in it, yeah? So much hope. And the next verse, verse 3. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I am going to go, Jesus says, I'm going. So you need to be okay with this. If you're not okay with it now, trust me and learn to be okay with it. I'm going. But I'm going because I plan to come again. And here's the thing. This is the thing that spins me about this idea that Jesus introduces now. He says, I will come again. And I mentioned before, we're talking about a time way down through the ages when Jesus will physically turn up. The Bible says it will be audible. It will be visible. There will be no surprise. The entire earth will see it greater than any any TED talk that all the world watched, the highest viewed whatever it is on YouTube, it's going to be incredible. But Jesus fulfills his promise in so many other ways. Think about it. He says, I will come again. The original language, the better translation is, I will be consistently present from this point on. It's the active, present use of the word, come again. I'm going to consistently be with you from this moment forward. And he fulfills it. Think about it. Days after this, in resurrection power, Jesus will rise and be present in the universe. Right? First fulfillment. Two, weeks after this, Jesus will send a fire into the hearts and onto the heads of his followers. And the, the church is born. The spirit-filled church of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled his promise again. In the close bond, the historians talk about it. They talk about these Christians that would rather die than confess that Caesar is Lord, 
They would rather say Jesus is Lord for the first few hundred years of Christianity. It was a secret movement. And the bond between them was evidence of the presence of Jesus. He said, I will be consistently present with you. And he fulfilled his promise. Jimmy Leonard, he does it today when we gather together and sing, oh, praise the name of Jesus. Thank you for your presence today. He's fulfilling his promise. But there is a time coming. The Bible says, when it will be fairly impressive people. Not until he arrives in great glory will he fully fulfill his word. And that day is coming soon. But Jesus is a man, our God, who fulfills his promises and comes home. So he's coming again soon. The lion will return. I love C.S. Lewis's characterising God in his story, The Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan the lion, I love it. And uh, the lion is going to return soon and he will roar. I can't do a lion's roar. That was really sad. That was kind of like Simba, wasn't it? And he's going to make a home. And he wants you to come home. I want to show you an epic video in a moment. Um, spoiler alert. Hey, it's past his program. I'm going to show you the end of the film. And if you haven't seen it yet, it will still be worth you watching. It's the story of Saru. It begins in 86, when a five-year-old boy lives with his brother Gudu. And Gudu and Saru, um, the way they survive is to go steal coal from a train. And they barter the coal for milk, for food. And on one particular journey, it's so heartbreaking. You see Saru tired. He's a little boy, he's a five-year-old. And stealing coal, you've got to do it late at night. And he's just tired. So he lays down on this train bench at the train station. And Gudu, his brother, goes off to find coal. And he just falls asleep. And when he awakes the next morning, Gudu! Gudu! Gudu, where have you gone? Gudu! Saru's alone. So he boards the train that's in front of him, thinking Gudu's on the train. And the train takes him thousands of kilometres away from his home to Calcutta. Where he does his best. He tries to survive. He steals food. He gets caught up with a local gang, a local bunch of adults with dodgy ass, try and kidnap him. And after living, escaping that and living under a bridge for about two months, he gets taken by the police to an orphanage where he stays for a little while until he's adopted by a Tasmanian couple. And they take him to Tassie. And this five-year-old kid from India grows up in Tasmania. This is a true story. And he has what you could definitely call a home there. But it's in his mid-twenties when he goes to university and he's having takeaway one night. He bought Indian, irony, Indian in Tassie buying Indian. And he's eating his food and it sparks some memories. Taste can do that, can't it? Smells can do that. When my mum, when I smell the smell of lamb, I remember my home. I remember that picture of Poppy. That's what floods my mind, is my home. Saru's doing that one night, he's eating curry, he's like, I wonder if I could find 
using Google Maps, my home. So he starts searching Google Maps in India. Can you imagine this? And he's zooming down. Is that my home? No. All he knows is he ordered a train and it went far. So he's just got to look far across India and he starts to kind of narrow it down. And then he has these flickering images in his mind of maybe this is, maybe that group of mountains that kind of looks similar to where my mum used to work. And he starts exploring around that and he thinks he's found a region that he grew up in. His mum, Sue, Tasmanian mum, Sue, encourages him and says, why don't you just, why don't you go on a journey and try? Why don't you try and find home? Which is where we pick up, where Saru eventually ends up. Let's have a look.
Nietzsche, the great postmodern theologian. Um, as she said, never give up hope. The lion returns soon. And we will see him face to face. And we will be in his presence. And it will be good. And all those we've said goodbye to, we will see again. <laughs>